Hello, and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and our guest this week is John Glenn, a British film director famous for helming the James Bond franchise throughout the 1980s, directing five of the Bond films, including For Your Eyes Only and License to Kill. In our conversation, we discuss a number of topics. From John's start on the Bond series as both an editor and second unit director, his collaboration with legendary stuntman Remy Julien using creativity and storytelling to design their action sequences, the controversial role of women in the Bond series, and much more. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. John, again, thank you so, so much for taking the time to to join us. I thought we could begin of the many early beginnings we could talk about. I wanted to ask you about the experience of, of directing Second Unit way before you got to direct actual main unit and just how visual action storytelling in general influenced your skills. You were working on the Italian job when you got offered Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Second Unit duties. Quote, while working on set of Majesty, I just kept shooting and made sure to never stop. Close quote. So... I was wondering, why do you think working as a second unit director made you, whether you knew it or not, was making you a better director? Well, the best job in filmmaking, I think you'll find a lot of directors will tell you this, is directing second unit. Because you haven't got the pressures of the first unit where you have the whole circus, you know, and you have doubles mainly. You work with the actors occasionally, but generally you're working with world-famous skiers. In a James Bond, they're all expert at everything they do. Because you haven't got the, the time pressures. You have pressures to a degree. You have to produce the goods. But it's not like the first unit where you, you've got a strict schedule and you mustn't go behind schedule, otherwise it costs so much money. The economics of filmmaking dictate that you have to, directors are reluctant sometimes to give scenes to the second unit. They get the choice action scenes to shoot and then you, you insert the, the main actors into that material that the second unit have shot. The advantage I had was that I was a film editor and when I came to do second unit, I was lucky because I could reconstruct a scene in small pieces. And if the sun shone, I would do my wide shots. And if it was snowing, I'd put a sheet over the bob run and do close shots of inserts and things. So the, the secret I found was to keep working. If the film unit you're working with, you start playing football, you're in trouble. And that's what happens, you know, when the weather's bad. They say, oh, we're in the bus, let's go in the cafe and all that. And once you lose that impetus of working, even if you're doing stupid stuff like on the Magisters, the first week's work I sent back to, to um, Pinewood Studios comprised of bullet hits on the sleigh, which was shot under a sheet where it was snowing with sun guns lighting, the hands on the controls controlling the ski bob, sweeping snow through the shot to give it movement, things like that. But, you know, suddenly everyone gets so enthusiastic Everyone's trying to make the shot better and better and you're passing time, but usefully, because you can't shoot the wide shots because the conditions are bad. So my advice to any second unit director is keep your unit working. 
even if it's stuff you won't use, you can always rehearse the scene. You know, you just keep everyone busy and the enthusiasm of the crew just keeps going and it's a wonderful asset. I was going back and looking at the way you guys seem to be working and there was an enthusiasm, as you say, and a curiosity in regards to discovering new camera angles. You know, you guys working on, on Majesty. I know you had Johnny Jordan who developed a, a special helicopter harness for filming the aerial shots. And it just shows, as we were saying before we began this conversation, the run and gun different style of filmmaking that you guys could afford to follow back then. Well, the whole secret, I suppose, is that uh, it's the director's concept. As a second unit director, you obviously liaise very closely with the main director. You know, you talk to him prior to production about the feel and the style, etc., etc. And you then work out what's first unit, what's second unit. Then the next stage is the storyboard. Now, I used to do my own storyboarding uh, in a, like a little childlike sketch you know, little frames, how I built the sequence up. And then I would employ an artist to come in and embellish what I'd done as, a, as rather crude drawings. You know, there's some brilliant storyboard artists about, and they actually managed to create movement. <laughs> they have various techniques to create movement, if you like. And the beauty of it is it excites people when you're relying on like cameramen, camera operators, actors, come into my room, there'd be storyboards pasted all the way around the room on every bit of wall. And they'd come in and they'd look and, they could, and immediately it starts to excite them because they can actually see something. There's a big difference between talking to someone and telling them what you're going to do and seeing pictures of what you're going to do. And those storyboards, you don't necessarily stick 100% to them, but what they can do is you can say, well, that's second unit, that's first unit, that's aerial unit, that's underwater unit. That's how you, on a bomb film, that's how you break it down. And when you, as an editor, I found it relatively easy to do. And then, of course, it when it's all shot, you know, I might be shooting in Greece on the boat with the first unit with Roger Moore and what have you. At the, precisely the same time in the Bahamas, an underwater unit was shooting what was underneath when it crashed into the sea. Then we're working with doubles in the Bahamas with the sharks and all this dangerous stuff. That's going on simultaneously as the first unit are doing the stuff up above, the second unit are doing the stuff below. And that's the way we used to work. It's a very efficient way to work. Good morning. My name's Bond, James Bond. You know, I was thinking about the Golden Gate fight in A View to Kill or yeah. the underwater. Yeah, yeah dry for wet and, and for your eyes only. You guys are using old school techniques and what that allows you, which is to me is exciting, shooting it in camera and then seeing the rushes the day later and understanding, does this work or do we have to go back? So what do these techniques, as we said, miniatures, front screen projection, partial set replicas, what do you feel like they offered you back then? Well, I think basically you, the old techniques, if you like, they didn't change very much over the years. You know, the Keystone Cops were using these techniques for ground miniatures and stuff like that, which are a wonderful thing because film generally is a two-dimensional thing. So you talked about the Golden Gate Bridge, you know. Now, that's an impossible scene to shoot. I mean, on paper, you say, wow, you know, how are we going to do that? And we went over to um, San Francisco and we met uh, Mayor Diane Feinstein first question she said how much money are you going to spend in San Francisco and we said five million dollars okay you can have anything you want so we said well we'd like to burn down the city hall apparently and uh, she said well if my fire chief 
if you're the go-ahead and the supervisors, that's fine. And I said, we want to shoot on the Golden Gate Bridge. He said, oh dear, uh, well, you better talk to the um, authorities who run the bridge. We get lots of requests for that and we can't really help most people because we've got all that traffic. We can't stop the traffic. You know, if you've got cameras and stuff above the bridge, you know, you could lose a camera and it could crash down. She said the safety issues are alive. She said, but you talk to those people and if they're agreeable, I'm agreeable. So um, we went up there and there's a, I don't know if you know that, but there's a, a like a two-man lift that goes up right to the very top, uh, the two supports. I went up to the top there and the site up there was quite amazing. I thought we have to use this. We have to get a camera up here. So we got VistaVision cameras up to the top and we shot plates, which we could then do front projection back at the Pinewood. But I said, what about if we could do a bit of the fight stuff up here for real, to actually have a cameraman up there and have the doubles fighting on the top of the bridge? Well, when you look at the bridge from the ground, it looks tiny, doesn't it? It looks like a bit of string, all the supports that go down. In fact, when you get up there, it's about six feet in diameter. It contains all the cables. And there's a couple of uh, cables stretched either side where you can hang on to him. So the bridge authorities see we were serious filmmakers and not going to be taking stupid, do stupid things, you know. We had a good reputation, shall we say. And uh, we were able to do some of the fight sequences actually on the bridge with all the traffic and the ships passing below. So you get this wonderful sense of depth. You can't recreate that any other way. And then back at Pinewood, we had three Golden Gate bridges built on the lot. We had one which was like a fairly wide model where we used the real airship coming in. And then we had a section where we staged fight stuff on the back lot. But then we had a, a scene in the, in the studio where we actually had the actors, Roger Moore and um, Tanya Roberts and uh, Christopher Walken, all in, engaged in this fight on top of the bridge and uh, we suspended Charlie Staffels was the front projection man and we suspended all his equipment which weighed about three tons right above the actors and we had the screen on the floor or the studio floor every piece of equipment that we were using had to be on safety wires because we couldn't have any cameras or parts of cameras dropping down on the actors who were performing below us. And it goes together seamlessly. That's the beauty about film. I mean, my editing experience really stood me in good stead because I was able to break a dream down into small sections. I think the mistake is a lot of people make is they try and do a very complicated piece of action in one. You can't do it. You can sketch it in one, but then you have to go into the detail. You can't really attain perfection on timing, etc., for more than about three or four seconds, quite honestly. And uh, we did an exercise one day, and we, we worked out how many cuts there were in a reel of a James Bond film, and I don't think any shot lasted for more than three seconds. <laughs> Let me ask you about the correlation between the, the work of an editor and then later your work as a director and the correlation between the two. You know, people should know, again, that you edited three Bond films before even directing your first. And and the same goes for Peter Hunt, by the way, which yeah, seems to yeah, have had a, had a similar career trajectory. But Peter, but Peter was a very good editor. 
and he actually brought in a whole new style of editing. I mean, Sean Connery would just look towards the door and you cut outside the corridor and you'd be walking down the corridor. It was a kind of abbreviated form of editing. In other words, if it was boring, take all the boring bits out, you can jump time. When I look back at some of the early British films, you know, they were so sort of boring because they showed unnecessary stuff, the stuff that wasn't intriguing. But the storytelling in the Bond films was really excellent. You were supposed to be in Istanbul last night. I'm afraid this unfortunate lighter business has uh, clouded your judgment. I haven't finished here, sir. This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment, and I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. Effective immediately. Your license to kill is revoked. And I require you to hand over your weapon. Now, we've been lucky to speak to directors who today seem to test the action movies a lot. You know, they put together an assembly or polish, and then they go out and test it, you know, with an average movie-going audience who perhaps doesn't even know what they're going to go see. Given the secrecy and, and the legacy of the Bond films, was there any interest from Cubby Broccoli to attempt to test the movies, or was the movie that you edited the one that was ultimately released? Yeah, we never tested the Bond films, certainly not my films. Our schedule was too tight. We had a very efficient operation. I mean, in fact, I was um, an editor before, and uh, on the editing side, I brought in quite some novel techniques to speed up the post-production process. Pima Studios, the mixing facilities there are very good. They were unique at that time, in as much as they had two theatres that shared one projection room. I saw it immediately. You could use both theatres to, to mix the same picture. What you had to do was to obviously separate, have the main mixer. Let's say Studio A was the main mixer and he was handling the dialogue and the music. The other theatre would do a lot of the pre-mixing where you, you mix down from 50 or 60 tracks into something that's, you know, you can handle. And then they didn't even have to send it anywhere. It was in the, still in the box upstairs for sharing the same projectors and everything. So that was a great saving in time. And I remember the chief mixer there, when I went in with the post-production schedule, which I had to do because I had to deliver the picture. We had all the dates booked in America for Memorial Day and all this stuff. And uh, I allowed, I knew the film very well, of course, so I, I was allowing so many days for each reel. And when he saw my schedule, he went crazy and uh, tore up my schedule and threw it up in the air. And I said, well, business is changing. You know, we have to have this schedule. We have to make this date. We're going to be running this film come what may. And I said, if I have to take half the picture to another studio to dub, that's what I will. Oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. I said, you can do it. We will do it if necessary. You have to be quite ruthless sometimes. You can be the most artistic person in the world. And I know there are directors who completely ignored schedules, budgets and everything, and they seem to get away with it because the film was great at the end of the day. But um, with a, a commercial film like a bomb film, you had a budget and you had a schedule and you had to keep to that schedule because if you didn't, costs would escalate at such a huge rate. I mean, you book the actors for days for uh, over a period of six months. Well, you can imagine if you start losing days, it throws all the, the scheduling and the actors are working on other films. You haven't got them if you delay the days that you've nominated and paid for. So it's essential to keep that schedule. And I always kept my schedule, always kept it. It seems there are 
a two-year window between one movie being released and the next one coming in. And I'm sure there's a little bit of a break, hopefully, between one and the other, but then you gotta jump in and, and work on the screenplay. And it begins with the screenplay. So allow me to ask you a little bit, when you have these deadlines, and yet at the same time, you know you need to turn in a finished script, what is your process like in regards to building the Bond screenplay? Do locations dictate? Do you work the action sequences first and try and weave a story around it? What, what's the most creative and helpful way for you to have worked it out? The problem is that uh, in the early Bond films, we had very good Fleming books. We then went on to Fiorizani, we went on to the short stories. Octopussy was part of Property of a Lady, short story about the egg. And that gave us a kind of a, we had to use the Fleming stories because they're great. But as time has gone on, of course, we've used up all that material. And we used to endlessly look back on the old films and the books and see which scenes had not been used in those films. And quite often, like the keel-hauling sequence, that hadn't been used in the film of the original book. So we actually transplanted it into Fewer Eyes Only. So it, uh, Michael Wilson, who was... Uh, uh, one of the writers. writers on that. He and I went on a lightning tour of Greece to go to the Meteoris. And when we were in Corfu, we were touring the island, and it was a very picturesque place. It's got a wonderful sort of atmosphere. It's all sort of yellowy color there. It's a photographer's dream, actually. And uh, we were looking at things we could hinge action sequences on. And then we went through this area, mountainous area, twisty roads, and all the olive groves all going up the mountain and this gave me the idea of using the olive trees you know with Remy Julien's cars do an action sequence there where you know you actually got people involved who were picking the olives while this was all going on so with action sequences always used to try and involve people to give you scale and perspective and also danger that's how we used to work the stuff I think people found that amusing I'm fascinated to, to hear how you collaborated with the writers. When we talk about action sequences, what I think is most exciting is your understanding of attempting to create action sequences that feel emotionally specific to that location alone or that movie alone. Yeah. About it, you had this to say, quote, Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson, who are the writers, would arrive at a sequence in the screenplay and list it as a blank action chase. They were focused on structure and they would move on to the next segment, leaving me to work in a separate room, trying to think of some original idea that felt organic to the narrative, close quote. So how do you try and use vehicles and gadgets and locations to create something that feels original to this movie specifically? Well, there are two things. First of all, the location wreckage you go on, they give you ideas about action. You know, you see a situation and you think, I can develop that. It can be a car chase or it can be a mountain climbing exercise. And Michael Wilson was very good. He used to do a lot of research and uh, he would sometimes bring in stuntmen like Rick Sylvester. He was coming over in the aeroplane with Cubby and uh, he was looking at a magazine and there was a picture of uh, Rick Sylvester going off of a mountain top. You know, as a picture, it wasn't very good, but Michael thought it's worth investigating. So he suggested bringing Rick Sylvester over to England. And Rick said, well, I didn't actually do that jump. He said it was a phony picture, you know. He said, I went to Mount Asgard in Northern Canada and um, I could have done it if I'd had the right equipment and the right helicopter, he said, but I didn't have the right helicopter and 
you know, we were working at seven and a half thousand feet and they couldn't get up there and the weather was terrible. So they, they phoned the picture, you know, for, for a magazine, that's fine. But Michael said, well, I think there's some mileage in this thing. Actually, the scriptwriters were talking about starting the film with the Union Jack and ending with the hammer and sickle. You know, as a sort of at that time, it was a period of detente, and we were trying to bring the Russians and the Americans together, and so forth, and the British, particularly with the Union Jack. So we developed that, and at the end of the day, we dropped the hammer and sickle part of it. But of course, we had the Russian involvement, and I was sent out as a, a second unit director to shoot that ski parachute jump, and it costs a lot of money in those days. It was, I think, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to do one shot. And then the rest of the sequence I shot in Sam Ritz, which was a lot cheaper and more accessible, and the weather was better there. You know, we were very fortunate to get that one opportunity to shoot that the jump, and Rick Sylvester did it really well. And the last thing I said to him was, um, Rick, don't forget, do this with style and panache. You are James Bond. Go. And I buried this flag, this red flag, in the snow because I didn't trust radios. And... Uh, he went off and that was I saw him start off and I buried myself in the snow and uh, the first time I saw it was when in Montreal when they looked at the rushes oh, it's yeah. a fantastic shot there's something about the Bond films which I think is the promise of of taking audiences to a location they've never been and seeing things they've never seen I wanted to ask you a little bit about the role that locations play in, in the Bond movies. About it, you had this to say, quote, in earlier Bonds, audiences didn't travel as much as they do now. It was very important to have in the movies exotic locations that could allow people to get out of their everyday daily routine, close quote. So how did you guys try and choose locations, whether it was Europe or abroad, that would offer not only visual opportunities, but felt new and undiscovered? Yeah, well, we, we used to, for instance, I'll give you an example. We'd been everywhere. It started off in the Caribbean, and we used to go there all the time to do all the underwater stuff in the Bahamas, and the water's clear, and they got sharks. <laughs> Everyone's scared of sharks, aren't they? They're a bit the most maligned creature on Earth, I think, because they're not quite as dangerous as everyone thinks they are. But again, that's excitement, you know, it's danger. And uh, I think that's one of the secrets of the Bond films, that people sense the danger. But we always tried not to repeat ourselves. And Covey was very insistent on that. We didn't sort of like to copy what we'd done before. I was a bit disappointed when I saw Daniel Craig come out of the water in Doctor No, that was the one thing of sort of Andrus coming out of the sea. It was such a fantastic shot. And I thought it was a mistake to copy yourself, because we never used to do that. And I think as time has gone on, they're getting more desperate for looking back through their past stuff. What was the most exciting stuff? And we'll try and repeat it. But, you know, you really have a job. You were asked earlier about you're in a room, the script writers are working in another room, and when it comes to an action scene, they just say, there was an action scene, there was a chase or whatever it was. And then they look to me because um, it's a very lonely job. You're in your, on your own there, and you're trying to think of original action, and there isn't a lot of it left. But eventually you, you discover something. I think a lot of the thing the producers used to encourage you. You felt the responsibility to come up with something original, but you got a lot of support. You get these guys coming who were experts, and um, then Willie Bogner would come up with an idea. He said, oh yeah, we, snowboarding was just coming in 
I remember on View to a Kill, Willie said to me, he said, oh, it's, it's going to be the thing of the future, snowboarding. He said, there's a lake in Switzerland. When we got this chase, we can have these guys chasing James Bond. And James Bond uses an improvised board to get across this small lake. He comes hurtling down and goes from the snow onto the lake and goes across. And of course, the pursuers, they try and do the same and they go in the water, you see. So I said, that's a great idea. That will work. In fact, we were shooting one part of it in Iceland and one part in Switzerland. They had nothing to do with it. Snow is snow, trees are trees, wherever you go in the world, you know. You know, I think you have to have a sort of a fairly healthy disrespect for film in a way, you know what I mean? You, you just take great leaps in the dark in the editing process. You can make it work. Allow me to just ask you a little bit about your collaboration with, with John Barry, who worked as the series, you know, music composer from yeah. Russia with Love in 63 all the way to The Living Daylights in 87. And I was wondering if there was a process between the two of you spotting the movie together, understanding what needed music and what didn't. And why do you think his understanding of, of score fit the emotion of Bond so well? I think what you have to understand is that during the editing process on a Bond film, we used to use temp music all the time. I mean, I, I would embellish scenes with music because that's the only way you can really time the scenes and understand how they can work out. A romantic scene, for instance, you put some beautiful music in from Gone with the Wind just as a temp and uh, go back to some of the early Bond music, which was so great in John's early films. And we'd pull those out and we'd use those in the action scenes and what have you. It was a temporary measure to sell the edit, if you like. And when Cubby wanted to see the film for the first time, he was very good. He sat in his seat and put you any, under any pressure. When I was ready to show him the film for the first time, then I would say, we'll have a screening. And he would come over. He'd sit there and watch it. And uh, it was like a finished film. It was completely dubbed and music and all the effects, even though it's all temporary, it's a selling process to sell my version of that movie. And I need the music to, to make the scenes work because the music in a film elevates you to a different plane altogether, an emotional plane. So you need to put temp music in to make sure that it works. And um, he would come out and he would make his suggestions and what have you, but generally it worked. I mean, the action scenes were always good. and to make sure they were good and he was very supportive we had a screening eventually for united artists would come over on mass to watch the film for the first time in the pinewood and they would then work out their advertising campaigns etc etc we already had the release date i mean that's what we've been working to and we that's why we had to make that date they, they would make a couple of comments but generally that was the finished film when they saw it you're full of surprises contessa so are you, Mr. Bond. Do you always arm yourself for a rendezvous? I'll take that if you don't mind. You're very sure of yourself, aren't you? Suppose I were to kill you for a thrill. I can think of something more suitable. It's it's been interesting, you know, trying to see how people have tried and changed the Bond formula and I think it's been very interesting for us in the last few weeks to just try and understand the legacy of the Bond women 
and how the roles have evolved. Sometimes you have a role which is more physical or not as involved, and other times they do drive the story. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, in what way do you think women's role in the Bond films have evolved over the decades in your experience when you guys were shooting it? And I was wondering if there was an effort in any way to try and consider if there was some kind of women's feedback from the female part of the audience and trying to take that into consideration to what you could apply on the next movie. Well, it's interesting what you're saying because they have evolved and uh, I think it all started really with, you know, trying to uh, give women a more important, worthwhile role in the Bond films. You know, you could argue that one time they were just very pretty decorations, you know. But um, we've tried to get them more involved and we certainly did that on uh, Licence to Kill with uh, Carrie Lowell. You don't necessarily associate Bonds with great acting roles for females, but we did consciously try to give them more to do. And uh, I think they've continued that. And you're good at reading people. Yes, I am. Which is why I've been able to detect an undercurrent of sarcasm in your voice. What else can you surmise, Mr. Bond? About you, Miss Lynde? Well, your beauty's a problem. You worry you won't be taken seriously. Which one can say of any attractive woman with half a brain? True, but this one overcompensates by wearing slightly masculine clothing, being more aggressive than her female colleagues, which gives her a somewhat prickly demeanor. And ironically enough, makes it less likely for her to be accepted and promoted by her male superiors, who mistake her insecurities for arrogance. All right. Now, I haven't just met you, I wouldn't go as far as calling you a cold-hearted bastard. No, of course not. But it wouldn't be a stretch to imagine. You think of women as disposable pleasures rather than meaningful pursuits. So as charming as you are, Mr. Bond, I will be keeping my eye on our government's money and off you perfectly formed up. The last specific sequence I want to ask you about, it's it's one of my absolute favorites, and it's the Paris car chase sequence in, in A View to Kill. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to just take a second to ask you about your collaboration. You mentioned him before, but Remy Julien, the way he creates story with, with jumping vehicles and crashing cars is, is fantastic. So I was wondering on a production level, what were some of the greatest challenges of shooting right beneath the Eiffel Tower? Remy Julien, I first met on the Italian job. Uh, he did all the stuff with the minis and what have you, and he was absolutely brilliant. At that time, he had quite a big organization in Paris, and he used to rehearse this stuff on an old airfield. Um, all the jumps that I've got footage somewhere, of the stills of him rehearsing these cars, doing these terrific leaps into boxes. Well, stuntmen use boxes to jump into, you know, do 90-foot falls into boxes. And he does the same thing with cars, but Remy is a real artist and he works with a stopwatch and he doesn't allow anything to chance and he's very safe if you look at all the scars on his legs you wouldn't think so but he, he's learnt the hard way his two sons used to work with him as well on License to Kill for instance he did some fabulous work for me on that and uh, I used to use him on every film of mine it was just like the first thing get hold of Remy and he spoke very little English so the communication was a bit difficult sometimes well, the Bond films in general seem to have this great legacy of stunt families, too. I'm also thinking about Vic Armstrong, who we could talk about for yeah, ages. Yeah, Vic, Vic, he was with me on, on Majesty's Secret Service, and I think he was very new to uh, the stunt game then. 
we were always looking for young stuntmen, you know, because most of the stuntmen were really getting too old to jump around anymore. They hang on and they dye their hair and they try and make themselves look young. But uh, a lot of them, like Bob Simmons, you know, so experienced, they became supervisors. They didn't actually do the stuff themselves because they couldn't anymore. They'd break. <laughs> but uh, there is a continuity. We used to use the same people. And then we try and bring young people in. I'm, I'm fascinated to ask you a little bit about your legacy as a film director and, and the role that the Bond franchise has played in your life. About the series, you had this to say, quote, you go see a Bond film and it kind of has a magic to it. Maurice Binder's opening titles, with Bond shooting down the barrel of the camera, John Barry's music, and of course, the action is everything in a Bond film. You don't go see a Bond film for the dialogue, and these movies shouldn't be taken too seriously, which is what you were talking about in regards to understanding the kind of entertainment you're providing to people. So I was wondering what has a creative conversation been like with yourself in regards to all these wonderful movies and even the ones we haven't spoken about, the ones you have directed, you know, in what way would you like audiences to remember your legacy and the contributions even like a hundred years from now? I think we've moved on from that style of filmmaking, quite honestly. The advent of the CGI, you would never do that jump off that mountain today. You would phone it in a computer. It's not the same and it doesn't look the same. And uh, I'm afraid there's no going back with movies and uh, who can say it's not the way it's going to go, but the audience get used to it. They get used to seeing an explosion with a, like a little black line all the way around it. You know, the youngsters and they don't know anything else, so they don't. But when they see my films, it's the real stuff. It was happening, which was fun for us filmmakers. Wonderful fun because it was a challenge. We'd sit around a table and work out how we would do things. It might be 16 people all contributing ideas. And next, you know, we'd go into production and we'd see that shot the next morning in rushes and it worked or it didn't work. And if it didn't work, we'd, we'd take back to the drawing board and we'd do something else. But generally it worked because we had the best people, creative people. And uh, I think people will look back on those action sequences. There will be other wonderful action sequences, of course. And there, there have been some fantastic ones in the past in some of the early Hollywood films. And there were some wonderful stunts and Ben-Hur and all those I was things. just thinking about that. Yeah, wonderful stuff that never be repeated. But of course, people lost their lives doing that stuff. It was that, that real. <clears throat> Somehow that transmits to the screen. It's a dangerous business and uh, they get paid accordingly. But you always try and keep everyone safe. And that's why now you don't have the bullet hits anymore. They're all put in afterwards. And it's not quite the same for the actors. But I mean, Top all got injured. Roger got injured. They all used to get injured with flying debris from bullet hits and that. So it was real because they were getting peppered. <laughs> John, you've been so generous with your time and I can't thank Sorry. you enough. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so, so okay, much. Okay, it's a pleasure. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Mr. Glenn for welcoming us into his house in England to record this episode. If you like the podcast, please help us out by taking a moment to subscribe, review, and share the show with your film-loving friends. It's what allows us to bring you new conversations month after month. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter to receive first-hand updates on which guests we'll be speaking to next. Be on the lookout for a conversation with Benjamin Volfish, the music composer behind films like Blade Runner 2049 and the newly released It Chapter 2. I'm Brando Benetton, and you've been listening 
to Soundstage Access.